You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Pando, Senior Editor at The Diplomat. And I'm delighted today to be joined by a special guest. Joining me all the way from Sydney is Ashley Townshend, Director of Foreign Policy and Defense at the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. Ash, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ankit. Good to speak with you. It's a pleasure. Uh, I know I haven't run into you at any uh, conferences or anything in a while, but I think that's becoming a little bit of a trend this year. Um, so as listeners might surmise um, with, with Ash on the show, uh, I am hoping to talk a little bit about Australia today uh, because... Australia has recently put out a couple interesting strategic documents, uh, which I think merit close analysis and discussion. So before we get into the discussion, I want to talk a little bit about 2016. So in 2016, Australia put out a defense white paper. And as, as some of you might know, 2016 is probably a strange year to do an exercise like that in hindsight, given that quite a bit changed in the world in 2017 with the election of Donald Trump to the U.S. presidency and the subsequent decline in U.S.-China relations. And sort of acknowledging those developments indirectly and directly in, in some ways, Australia has just issued on July 1st a defense strategic update. We'll talk a little bit about what exactly that is and a force structure plan for its military, basically laying out how its strategic priorities have changed and been updated to reflect some new strategic realities in the neighborhood. And it's an interesting exercise because few countries, I think, undertake undertake an exercise like this. And I'll just quote a little bit from the Australian um, Department of Defense's description of why they felt the need to update the 2016 Defense White Paper. While the drivers of change identified in the 2016 Defense White Paper persist, they have accelerated faster than anticipated. Australia now faces an environment of increasing strategic competition. The introduction of more capable military systems enabled by technological change and the increasingly aggressive use of diverse gray zone tactics to coerce states under the threshold for a conventional military response. So Ash, I'm delighted to have you on because I know you follow security issues in Australia and in the Indo-Pacific quite closely. Tell us a little bit about the background conditions in Australia that led to this defense strategic update um, manifesting. Thanks, Anne Kit. Um, I think your choice takeaways from the update document just there um, really do get to the heart of it. Um, it's probably fair to say that almost as soon as the 2016 um, uh, Defence White Paper was published, um, analysts, officials, the think tank community in Australia were all starting to talk about how it was rapidly um, going out of date. Uh, that had to do um, with the not just the election in the United States that you alluded to, but I think uh, as, if not more importantly, um, the uptick in China's use of um, coercive statecraft here in the Indo-Pacific, both specifically vis-a-vis -vis Australia, as well as more generally um, with regards to our regional interests insofar as the way that Chinese behavior in the South China Sea, in Northeast Asia, in maritime and continental Southeast Asia, in the Pacific, um, has become increasingly assertive uh, and how China has become increasingly uh, willing to prosecute its interests in the gray zone um, in addition to and under the shadow of its um, increasingly uh, potent conventional military capabilities. That's the context. Um, and the, obviously, effects of the US election in terms of an administration that at least over which initially there were questions, significant questions raised about um, where the alliance would fit in um, its global priorities. I think many of those for Australia have been assuaged, although not for all regional allies. Um, in light of those questions and in light of China's behavior, the 2016 white paper seemed really for most of us to be just too optimistic by the time we got to the end of 2017. 
Right, and the and a big focus in the 2016 white paper was on the notion of the rules-based order, the rules-based international order. That phrase appears all throughout that document, and it is very much the objective that Australia is going to be a partner that walks shoulder to shoulder with the United States in defending that order. One of the reasons I brought up the U.S. election is because I think that sort of language about the rules-based international order in a U.S.-Australia allied context does appear a bit antiquated in in hindsight, particularly with the Trump presidency having gone the way that it has. So some of the commentary that I've seen, and I'd love to get your thoughts on whether you agree or disagree, is that this update is in a way Australia still acknowledging the U.S. alliance as the cornerstone of its of its defense policy, but also increasingly taking more um, of of the realities into account and the fact that it might have to go it on its own to some extent. How do you how do you view that? Look, yeah, I think there, there are two points there, Ankit. Uh, on, on the first, I, I agree with you. Uh, language around the rules-based order and preserving it um, does seem a little antiquated in light of developments over the last four years. Um, having said that, uh, it is still a primary objective of Australia to do our part for the regional order uh, and to contribute to its upholding, both with the United States as, with, uh, as well as with other um, like-minded allies and partners. I think in terms of the lexicon here, the really interesting shift is been, uh, as you say, from a very large number of references to the rules-based order in that 2016 document to, in this white paper, um, a, a, a very significant treatment of the term grey zone coercion, uh, which didn't really appear in the 2016 document and which is in this one, you know, a dozen times or so. Uh, that is an interesting development which we can reflect on. But to your question, the second point about the alliance, um, I, I think it's fair to say in my read uh, of the document is that this is in many ways our response to and, and our answer to the United States national defense strategy of 2018. And the reason I say that is because this document is very clear about regional prioritization. Um, the 2016 white paper listed our strategic defense objectives as being the defense of Australia, the defense of our region, and the pursuit of global interests and objectives um, around the world. This white paper zeroes in on the near Indo-Pacific for Australia. The second part of that is that this white paper, although it does talk about defence self-reliance, what it really is doing here is, is demonstrating in Australia that is because of all of the reasons we've discussed, um, bulking up, pursuing advanced capabilities, networking those capabilities, spending more on its defence, taking a more active role in the region so that it can be both more able to achieve effects independently in service of shared and common objectives, both of the United States, but also of our near and close partners like Indonesia, um, uh, like Malaysia, Singapore, in, the, in, in, the, in Southeast Asia, like our Pacific friends, and like obviously US treaty allies, Japan and Korea in the region. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, putting myself in the shoes of somebody in the Trump administration, I mean, a lot of what you just said is something that the administration has been pushing for allies to do, to, uh, to, to spend more on their defense, to bear a greater share of the burden in the Indo-Pacific when it comes to security. Uh, so that's interesting. Um, and particularly the link to the national defense strategy, I think, I think is, a, is an important observation. Let's let's shift gears and talk a little bit about hardware, which you um, alluded to. Uh, so the, the controversial part, I guess, of the national uh, of the defense strategic update is Australia's shift and well, not really shift, but increase in uh, interest in acquiring more capable 
strike platforms uh, with, with certain standoff capabilities uh, like the long-range anti-ship missile uh, and a few other things under consideration. And, uh, of course, there's cash being put behind these procurements. The, the Defense Strategic Update does promise the outlay of a significant amount of Australian dollars over the next over the next decade. So there is, you know, a clear strategic purpose in terms of what the strategic objective is, what are the capabilities necessary to achieve that, and what amount of money will be spent on, a, on acquiring these systems. Let me ask you, though, in terms of deterrence, how, how has Australian thinking about its deterrence requirements shifted, especially in light of this new focus on gray zone coercion? Yeah, look, lots in that, Ankit. I think first in terms of the capabilities, uh, you're right. One of the um, headline-grabbing uh, developments announced uh, uh, with the update was that Australia would proceed with the purchase of 200 long-range anti-ship missiles from the United States, um, which will be at least initially um, fitted to um, our existing uh, Super Hornets and in time to other airframe. Uh, and that will give us a long-range standoff capability of the kind that we haven't had for some time. Beyond that, I think the more significant um, uh, 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 development or planned development really is the dollars that will be invested into R&D with regards to hyper Sonics and other forms of uh, strike platforms uh, at both um, land, air, sea, as well as cyber capabilities. Uh, and here we're really talking about significant money in, in the context of the Australian defence budget. I mean, just to give you, you know, uh, some uh, some ballpark numbers here, uh, across the board, we're talking about upwards of potentially $20 billion to be invested in R&D and long-range strike capabilities, as well as in unmanned combat systems over the course of the next decade. Uh, our annual defence budget stands or will stand um, at the end of the decade around $70 billion. Uh, that puts things in perspective a little bit about just how much this is now becoming a priority. How we will use these new capabilities gets to your second question, which is about deterrence. Um, Australia is now getting back into the deterrence game in terms of the uh, framework of this update to hold adversaries and to, uh, at, at risk from greater distances uh, to, uh, uh, sorry, to hold adversaries at risk at greater distances from Australia by holding their interests as well as their infrastructure at risk in order to preserve our own interests is the framing. Uh, having said that, I think that we are only really at the beginning of the process with regards to the operational concepts that are going to accompany those. Mm -hmm. um, Elrasms uh, on Australian aircraft in numbers of 200 would be shortly exhausted even in a coalition environment in Northeast Asia. Um, I think that those particular platforms will have a lot of utility in maritime Southeast Asia, but how they will be combined with other forms of conventional military activity, the sorts of threats that will be issued around which stakes in the region, a lot of that work is still to be done. Mm -hmm. And so when when it comes to uh, the acquisition of these platforms and, and the application of deterrence, I mean, really, Australia isn't straying away from relying on deterrence by denial. This is primarily about granting Canberra the ability to basically hold its littoral and have greater access into into Southeast Asia. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. The frame I would use is um, we are seeking to ensure that we continue to have access and influence uh, in, in a part of the Indo-Pacific that is becoming increasingly contested mm -hmm. and where we believe Chinese objectives are to reduce our access and influence. Um, now, some of the specific ways that could happen that the white paper, sorry, the update mentions is the um, establishment of a, a foreign military base in the Southwest Pacific. Um, it's not named that that could be a Chinese one, uh, but it's no secret that that is particularly an interest and a concern that Australia has 
down the line. Uh, I think that's a good example because um, at, at face value, um, the, the, the um, acquisition of long-range strike platforms are not particularly well equipped to deal with that particular eventuality. So how Australia will go about shaping the environment, working more with partners, working on the ground with Southeast Asian, in this case, specific countries, in order to um, dissuade, deter, disrupt um, the pursuit of, for instance, uh, a Chinese military or Navy base in the Pacific, um, I think is where really uh, you, you'd want to you'd, you'd want to put your bets when you're thinking about how Australia's uh, ADF is going to interpret this new guidance. Um, that's just one example. Um, when it comes to the South China Sea, I think a striking um, a revelation of our former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in his in his memoirs a couple of weeks ago uh, was that um, one of the reasons for hesitation around freedom of navigation operations, in his view, um, was the concern that Australia would be isolated without its own capacity to, if you like, um, uh, have some escalation options to provide the confidence for Australia to undertake a FONOP, mm, okay. um, noting that he couldn't necessarily rely on the United States always being there. Um, it's it's not a stretch to think that um, Australian aircraft with long-range standoff weapons might now be able to provide that sort of confidence to ships on the water. Right, right. And so I do want to get to um, the Australia-China relationship a little bit. But before I do that, I mean, we often, you know, we've been talking a lot about great powers, the U.S. and China, uh, but Australia obviously has a lot of important relationships in Southeast Asia, particularly with countries like Indonesia um, comes to mind in particular. How, how has the defense strategic update been viewed in these countries? Well, the Indonesian Defence Minister, Prabhu Subianto, um, welcomed the update on its release. And Australia, obviously, as you would expect, undertook a very comprehensive set of pre-briefings to all of our regional partners, um, uh, including China, uh, including Indonesia and others in the region, um, to to read them into what and why Australia was was going to be doing in this defence update. So you would expect that. But it is significant that Indonesia and others in Southeast Asia have also welcomed this, including um, uh, the Philippines. It is significant because one of the reasons that Australia has uh, in the past um, been hesitant around um, its public discussion of or policy pursuit of uh, long-range strike platforms has absolutely to do with the illusion in your question that um, uh, it could be misperceived in the region or perceived accurately in the region as a capability which down the line uh, might pose uh, strategic uh, concerns to our um, our near friends in the region. So um, the fact that the Indonesian Defence Minister in particular has singled this out as something, uh, as, a, as an update, which is um, a positive contribution to regional security and something which he understands the motivations of, again, they're alluding to China's step up in assertiveness in the region, is I think a very significant development. That could well pave the way for further coordination and collaboration between Australia and Indonesia, both with the United States and independently at a bilateral level um, when it comes to exercises, operations, uh, 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 patrols and so forth in and around contested parts of the South China Sea in the region. Mm. I'll draw your attention to just there um, at the weekend, the 4th of July, um, approval of the sale of Ospreys to Indonesia by the United States. Australia and the US 
um, work with Ospreys. Australia doesn't have them, but works with the US um, and its Ospreys with um, the Marine Forces based in Darwin. And there's often been talk about bringing Indonesia more closely into that particular um, rotational deployment. And beyond that, earlier in the year, the reported Australia-Indonesia intelligence sharing agreement, which would see Australia be in a position to provide uh, sort of more directly um, operationally relevant intelligence to Indonesian forces with regards to what's happening, what China is doing in parts of the South China Sea and around the Tuna Islands, for example. These are all signs of the way that Australia, I think, um, will take a more active role in working with third parties in the region who are on the front line of all of this. Uh, the defence update signals the shaping part of our defence strategy as being uh, the first and most important part. And I think that that is there um, uh, that is that is one example of how Australia will work with third parties uh, to actually take a more um, a direct stake in, in in the management of regional frictions in the maintenance of conventional deterrence um, that can happen independently of the United States and again with the shared objective of the alliance and partner network in mind mm-hmm. now that's that's fascinating especially that bit about Indonesia and the Ospreys that's definitely something to keep an eye on after the after the approval of that sale I think I saw a few reports that the Indonesians are actually still a little confused about whether they're going to move ahead with the Ospreys but certainly something to keep an eye on um well they've got the right now yeah, yeah exactly. exactly they have the yeah they have the right to procure that if they deem fit um so the elephant in the room, uh, or the dragon in the room, so to speak, China. Um, I know Australia has had certainly a lot of countries in the Indo-Pacific have had a, a uh, an eventful six months with China uh, since particularly the beginning of the pandemic this year. Um, maybe for our listeners who haven't really been keeping up with um, Australia-China relations, um, if you could just in maybe a minute or two, tell us a little bit about Australia's year with China. I know it's been I know it's been a rocky one, but it's just I think important context for this conversation. Absolutely. I think the it's fair to say it's been a very, very difficult year uh, in the Australia-China relationship, uh, and that was coming off the back of a, a difficult few years um, where Australia has really been in the doghouse. China is our largest trading partner um, and therefore is a country that has always occupied the minds of the highest levels of Australian government and business with regards to maintaining a good relationship. But going back probably three years now, the Australian government, and, and really in a bipartisan way, has taken a much stronger line with regards to defending and standing up for Australian interests when they were perceived to be at risk uh, by Chinese initiatives or objectives. Um, the inter- in the uh, introduction of foreign um, counter-foreign interference legislation two years ago into the Australian Parliament um, was one example of that. The banning of Huawei in Australia's 5G network was another. Uh, this year, um, the the initiative that has really caused a lot of uh, disturbance in that relationship has been the government's, again, with bipartisan support, uh, push for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, which was finally adopted at the World Health Organization in May. But prior to that, when initially announced um, as an Australian initiative, led to a very sustained and and focused campaign of disinformation, propaganda and intimidation uh, by Beijing, um, by its consulates and embassy here in Australia, um, by the media and online actors uh, to cast Australia really as a disruptor, as a country that was acting at the behest of Washington, which wasn't the case um, with regards to um, the the uh, the COVID-19 inquiry and then um, threatening 
and doling out economic coercion against Australia, sanctioning, or at least uh, in, in, in our framework, it would be sanctioning, but banning Australian barley exports into uh, into China uh, at, a, at around the cost of a billion dollars to Australia, as well as uh, banning four Australian beef exporters from selling their wares in the mainland. Um, these are on the overall scale of the bilateral trade relationship, um, small numbers. Um, the trade relationship is ultimately grounded in the sale of minerals, um, but also tourism, exports, um, and agriculture are big components of that. We've seen the Australian, um, uh, sorry, the Chinese uh, Chinese officials threatening Australia around students uh, and tourists that they may not seek to come back to this country or they may be prevented from doing so mm-hmm. because of uh, developments in China. That's where we are in the relationship right now, and that really is the context for the update last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I bet the folks working on that update have been working on it for a while. And you know, this has, like you said, Australia's had a few a few difficult years with China, but certainly I think developments in 2020 have shown uh, that this really does remain a problem. Um, So we are running a little short on time, but I I wanted to ask you something that I like to kind of dig into in these discussions uh, on geopolitics in the region, uh, which is uh, when it comes to democracies and sort of plans for implementing strategy and uh, procuring certain systems, uh, something I think we should talk a little bit more about is the domestic politics. I know Australia has had a rocky time with, with you know, prime ministers coming and going here and there. Um, but broadly speaking, the strategic direction of Australian foreign policy has remained the same. So when it comes to this defense strategic update, how, how robust do you think this will be in the face of potential political upheaval in the, uh, in the Australian system? I think it is, as you suggested, it is going to stand uh, the test of time and, and, and barring any major um, um, changes in political settings here. And I think an election wouldn't be one of those. Um, uh, the capability spending plan and the dollar amount attached to it outlined in the update is going to continue. And, you know, there's already reason for um, being confident that that's the case. Um, although we've seen the uh, a change in leadership within the ruling um, Liberal National Party coalition over the last uh, uh, four years, which has seen a different prime minister usher in the update from Malcolm Turnbull, the prime minister who put in the defence white paper in 2016, um, and only did so very soon after his predecessor was pipped at the post, Tony Abbott, who was the prime minister that started the defence white paper update. Although you've already seen those changes, there's a remarkable degree of consistency with regards to spending at or above 2% of GDP and sustaining that through very serious and detailed um, um, budget papers and capability acquisition programming um, that supports the defence strategic update or indeed the white paper. The dollar amount hasn't really increased significantly in this update. The significance is that it's been the the gradual um, and considerable ongoing increases are now going to be sustained through to the end of the decade, which will see Australia spending well above inflation through into 2030. Um, That is not something that many other uh, Western militaries can say at this point in time, particularly in the context of COVID-19. So I think that that will continue. And the reason for that is, again, the ballast, which is the bipartisan position, um, you know, at its core, really, um, that 
Australia does need to be strong when it comes to charting both a more independent and a more um, regionally focused and active foreign and defence policy in the region. The foreign policy white paper, the defence strategic update were both welcomed by the uh, Labor Party opposition. And so I think for voices and, and, and your listeners in Washington, um, uh, I would be very confident that this document is not just a, a statement of intent, but is in fact where Australia is going. Right. And, you know, I mean, as an American with an interest in Asia Pacific security, I definitely find it to be reassuring. So there is that. Very good. Um, look, Ash, yeah, I want to I want to thank you uh, for making this work across all these time zones. I know it's never easy to bring an Aussie on the podcast, but uh, happy, happy to have you. Not at all. Look, thanks so much for having me and uh, appreciate the discussion. My pleasure. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.